Hello, everybody, and welcome to the special Halloween edition of the AMT Tech Trends podcast. I am Benjamin Moses, the director for Manufacturing Technology, and I'm here with Stephen Lamarca, AMT's Manufacturing Technology Analyst, and we have a special guest. Special guest, indeed. I'm Sheriff Woody, reporting live from Andy's room. <laughs> Hi, Sheriff. As played, as played by Russ Waddell, the MT Connect Managing Director at AMT. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, as we're prepping, uh, the guy suggested I be uh, Joe Buck today. So <laughs> Joe Buck. send your faxes into Joe Buck at AMT if you like my outfit. He doesn't get out of that outfit. <laughs> Nonstop, all day long. <laughs> Welcome, guys. I'm excited to record today. It's uh, fall, and last episode we talked about phones uh, and how I like to stretch. Well, we like to stretch our phones as much as possible, get harness all the value out of that uh, expensive purchase. And now that we've mentioned how you know the end of life for phones tend to be poor battery usage, all of a sudden I'm sensitive of how crappy my battery is now. <laughs> so yeah. yesterday I was like at 10% by 10 p.m. I was like, ah, what am I gonna do? Oh, let me just put it on my charger right next to my bed. <laughs> yeah. So problem solved. Uh, it's it's a tedious. It's uh, For some reason, the battery's just um, dying quickly on me. But that was one of my right. many minor problems I've faced this past week. I get that, too, because, like, I also, like, will put on. In fact, it's probably a good idea since it's right next to me. I'll put my phone on the charger and, you know, I'll check in on it, like, you know, 45 minutes later and it will say fully charged. I'll take it off the charger when it says 100%. And then I'll look back at it like five minutes later and it says 91%. How? <laughs> how does that happen? How is that quick? Sheriff Russell, how, how are you doing with your phone? Are you stretching it out or are you uh, itching to buy a new phone? I'm a new phone convert. I, I find that it's much easier to share it with the latest technology. <laughs> I agree with that. agree with that. Steve, we were going to mention uh, some folding at home efforts. Yeah, yeah. I know before this, we were going to talk about even more uh, graphics card shenanigans and uh, how uh, AMD Radeon has uh, just announced today their new lineup to compete with the NVIDIA RTX 30 series. But we've talked about GPUs for way too much and, um, you know, just the PC world uh, slam dunking on gaming consoles all the time. But uh, folding at home, you posted a article this morning to amt no joke like 10 minutes before i was still reading that article in bed and um i thought that we need to share this because this is great but the folding at home uh article on network world uh the title is folding at home exascale supercomputer finds potential targets for covid19 cure and what's what's really cool is like you know we Ben, Ben and I have spoken on um, the program folding at home before how it's uh, it's computational power uh, that is distributed or basically everybody's gaming rig or home computer can be used to uh, do some computational um, efforts towards helping cure like a disease by monitoring, by simulating the the misfolding of certain proteins. Right. Um, well, we've spoken about this before and it's been like an entire summer of a pandemic later. And it's really great to hear that uh, it's almost, it's essentially, well, it's almost uh, found a cure for uh, 
the coronavirus. Um, but one of the coolest highlights that I had to mention about this article is it said that folding at home at its peak had more than 2.5 exaflops of computational power. And I mean, I don't even know what that means, but it sounds like a lot, but at one point it does break it down and says, uh, as of late October, like now, um, the computational power, uh, the compounded computational power of folding at home has dropped to, uh, 247 petaflops, um, which they were all depressed about, but that's still like twice as much as uh, I think the comp- the super the America's most powerful su- supercomputer called the Summit. Right, it still right. dunks on that, but it's <laughs> it makes a lot of nerds that have spent too much money on uh, gaming rigs that's feel right. pretty good about themselves right now. It does feel good because uh, you know I, I'm glad I got back into it. Uh, I think I started uh, folding back folding uh, earlier this year. Um, and I think I've had two computers. So one I use for uh, my own personal, uh, streaming and recording and stuff. And I think that exploded, I think because I was letting it fold for like weeks on end for no end, but that's just hearsay. Uh, but it's cool to see some type of, uh, return or invest or, um, uh, potential, uh, contribution to the society from, from our first. So I thought that was really cool. Right. And how often did you, have you been checking on it? Checking on the results or checking on what my just, just what doing. your status, what your computer's doing. Oh, uh, probably daily, once a day. Okay. In terms of uh, what uh, uh, setting the settings it's done and kind of my ranking. So I've noticed the past uh, probably two weeks, um, not all the time, but every other day, I'll check in on it, and the bar's not moving, and the wheel's sure. not turning at all. And I'm wondering, or what's going on now? What happened now? What what do I need to call Sean from IT <laughs> about to figure this out for me? And because it just simply wasn't working on what they call a work unit. Right. And after doing some digging uh, this morning, which is actually how I stumbled across this uh, this article um, after you posted it, was. Um, I was trying to find out why wasn't my why did my computer stop folding? So many people have had their computers hooked up and working on folding at home right. that folding at home and all of like the institutes uh, giving work to folding at home mm-hmm. have r- literally ran out of work to do. <laughs> so the the number of projects can't keep up with the number of computers that are trying to work on projects. That's fun. It's wild. And that's why we saw that. That's why the report states that uh, huge drop as of, you know, this month. As a person, I think I'm ranked around five, uh, low four, low low five thousands, breaking into four thousand. Wow, dude, that's nuts. Yeah. I've got some work for them. (laughs) Tell us, Russ. I keep hearing about these AIs that are going to help me identify you know, those those rotten cattle rustlers. <laughs> well, we talk about some uh, empty connect projects and test beds, Steve. We got uh, some yeah, man. Um, so I was actually on a uh, webinar call with Russ yesterday at his house, um, listening to. Uh, a webinar that was basically on digital twin. And I think it was hosted by ISO because they are looking to uh, set forth some standards to, you know, define 
what digital twin is. And I'm not going to go one more into that because I'm going to let Russ take care of that. But when it comes to the test bed, um, there's been some things, you know, as, as I've mentioned before uh, in previous episodes of the podcast, we recently got the uh, the end effector, the gripper and the vision system for our uh, test beds collaborative robot. And um, wh- since we've been away like from it all summer, I haven't really been thinking about uh, w- with no um, end in sight. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know when I'm going to be in the office next to actually do some projects on the test bed. But I was scrolling through Instagram yesterday and I thought to myself, as I'm watching, as I'm looking at all of these uh, watch pages, these mechanical watch pages and these dudes like flexing their Automir Piguet and their Patek fully wrist watches. Um, I'm thinking, dude, I could use uh, AMT's seven axis collaborative robot as like the most expensive and advanced uh, technology watch winder and i think you know as soon as i'm back in the office that's probably the first project i'm going to do i'm going to program just a a, you know short program to basically articulate the arm and hold a automatic self-winding watch in place and just basically let it run for like a day to see if it can keep the watch working and functional but that's what i'm thinking about but uh yeah that's i mean there's a bunch of other tests to get us there, Steve. So we we still uh, have uh, a ways to go. One to plug it back in, make sure everything works. <laughs> oh man, yeah, we do have to uh, diagnose it potentially. Yes, so and also uh, dust it off. Doing some uh, positional accuracy tests and repeatability tests. I think that uh, the watch winding could be a, a good uh, short-term duration test. But uh, yeah. Um, but like I mentioned before, um, Russ and I, I had the pleasure of going to Russ's house yesterday uh, to sit in with him on a uh, webinar hosted by ISO and uh, regarding Digital Twin. Russ, can you uh, give us a brief description of that? What went down? Well, you you lost me a bit with all these pay tech Phillips, but <laughs> I can tell you uh, that that yes, I can describe the webinar. The, uh, the International Standards Organization, ISO, is working on a framework document which will be published as ISO 23247, Digital Twin Framework. Uh, that's intended to normalize what we refer to as a twin and, and sort out some of the confusion around what's a model versus a simulation versus a twin and get to a globally accepted definition for what's a digital twin and then how do you how do you actually put one in place for for manufacturing specifically whether you want to wind a watch or other useful things that you might want to do so who all was there i know well it was really cool you reported uh around or more than 500 uh attendants on the uh the webinar but i know um, you know, our colleague Sharab uh, with MT Connect uh, actually had a huge hand in a lot of the projects that were on display there. But the three big companies putting everything on display, I believe, was Sanvik, Coromont, Lockheed Martin, and Boeing, right? What did they That's show right. off? All three of them were deploying uh, basically examples of the framework in action. So ETRI, a research organization in South Korea, prepared the draft of the of the framework, and then ISO Technical Committee 184 Subcommittee 
five, working group 15, uh, sorted through the, the draft that the Koreans put together and basically worked that through the ISO approval process. And then once it was pretty close to finished, that was when Boeing, Lockheed, and Sandvik each stepped up and said, hey, we want to deploy uh, an example of this on some real equipment. So Boeing was looking at a robotic uh, riveting or, or hole drilling operation on a wingspan uh, or spar. The Lockheed use case was measurement of holes also on a wing. Um, and then the Sandvik Cormont use case was looking at tool selection, optimization, and wear, wear prediction as well. So three slightly different use cases, but all three of them were taking the, the architectures and information exchange systems that were laid out in this ISO document and putting each of those into a real world factory uh, use case that was you know, kind of beyond the theoretical and into the practical realm. So how is how does ISO's document look? And and by that I mean like how is um, ISO defining digital twin? What makes what do, what rules has ISO is ISO putting in place um, to basically say, okay, yes, this is a digital twin, or no, that's just you know a simulation and a detailed three D model of something. So this document, particularly the framework, is really about exactly how you set things up in a manufacturing environment. So it's saying there's a there's an intent component. So is the purpose of this for you know a real time evaluation and control, or is this for an offline evaluation and control? Uh, is it is it is it tying together multiple pieces, or is it kind of one single component? And a lot of it turns out to be just making things that already had pretty in-depth simulation existing work better together and also applying a whole host of different standards, including MT Connect, to make it so that these things are, are scalable and you could actually apply it, you know, one set of rules, but it works for one set of equipment that's at Boeing, a different set of equipment that's at Lockheed, a different set of equipment that's at Sandvik, and you're repeating and reusing as much of the kind of the, both the best practices and the technological underpinnings as much as possible. So the other standards in there are like STEP AP242 for models, um, QIF for quality, it's the quality information framework It's basically telling you about inspection data. Um, and MT Connect is, is heavily involved in each of these architectures as well for getting data back off the machines. But the theory is you'd be able to use a whole bunch of other standards that, that are basically on a stand-in for each of those components and you'd still be able to get the same thing because that framework is broad enough to say, you know, you need to define data, you need to pass data, you need to have quality data. And as long as you have those components, you can mix and match and still get to this workable, uh, this workable end, end product that, that solves the objectives laid out in that framework. Wow. So I think it helps to like, uh, it helps for me at least to think of it as, you know, there's a lot of products out there, whether it's, you know, a five X, a CNC machine or a, you know, seven joint collaborative robot that already have, you know, on their own, what may seem or, and even, you know, uh, apply to these uh, standards as being a digital twin but a true digital twin that I, th I think I'm picking up properly is the digital twin of all of these systems integrated together into, to 
be a a digital twin of all of these different units working together. Am I right? Yeah. So, I mean, you've got for the AMT test bed, you've got CAD models of the robot. You've got CAD models of the uh, pocket NC. You have a, an integrated CAD model of the environment. You took measurements and, and modeled the space, but that's all, that's basically geometric models, right? So you right. have, you have shapes, you have uh, surfaces, essentially. If you want to add, motion models, so a kinematic model that's describing the motion of the pocket NC or, or the motion of the robot, or, you know, you know, you want to add a functional model of what's the end effector do and what's the difference between the gripper versus the vision system or something like that. As you layer all these other models into your, into your cell, the, the test bed cell, you get closer and closer and closer to a digital twin. The, the twin is, it has to be a twin of something and there's not, there is no end use case for having, you know, a robust simulation of the robot itself. If that if that robot is only ever going to operate inside a work cell um, or on a part, you have to model the part, or you have to model the end effector that's not part of the, the arm. Model. And it's time, you know, digital twin is all kind of like an extension of digital thread, right? So you're you're tying these things together, and in the end, you you get kind of the fullest practically useful representation of reality as uh as close to when it's happening as possible and that's that's what pushes you over the edge from just a model to a simulation based on moving models to a full-blown twin but i'm just a simple cowboy (laughs) (laughs) well i'm looking forward to seeing what uh that is assuming i can actually understand what it everything it's saying but i'm looking forward to this iso document to uh to, that that will define you know the just look at the pictures right you know you find, <laughs> you read the diagram and it says this thing plugs into that thing that thing plugs into this other thing and you know from your perspective as the cell owner it's sort of like well who's the expert in this thing how do I call them and then what does it look like when it's working you know so you you basically get each of those little connection points working one at a time and you get the components plugged in one at a time and chip away at it a little bit little by little until you end up with a uh, a thing that that works in the end but your job is to figure out what the heck do i wanted to do in the first place so sure you know, why do i even need a twin of my work cell right yeah and i think that's uh one of the big takeaways is i think you mentioned the word intent uh earlier in the description of it that's a right. takeaway for myself is now there's value being harnessed from these different technologies um and that i, I think for me that's the biggest driver for continuing to see progress and i think uh, different organization will start harvesting value and continue developing the technology because they are seeing value from this development. It's not just a, a science experiment. I keep getting hung up in technical conversations and technical details, and it, it's been hard to separate, well, this is what we can do, and this is what we could make this thing do. And I, I kind of, I tend to lose sight of exactly what the business case for it is. So to see Sandvik and Lockheed and Boeing, you know, one equipment provider and two end users all concurrently saying, we really want to do this. Right. Um, particularly, you know, combined with looking at Siemens has digital twin for virtual commissioning. You know, instead of sending a guy out to set your machine up when you buy a, a CNC machine, they'll, they'll basically do it with a combination of a, an internet connection to that machine and some video. Right. So that's, I mean, that's, that's an immediate value right now. I don't have to get on an airplane send a person, take a hotel night. I mean, it's very obvious to see that, that business case. And then um, Fanuc and, and Toyota, 
also announced back on the IMTS network a couple of weeks ago during the, the network week, mm -hmm. they launched a digital twin. It's basically looking at, at the controller itself on the CNC. Right. So it's a twin as your, basically as your GUI, right? So okay. your, your interface with that machine isn't just G code flying by faster than you can possibly read as a, as a person. Right. Now it's, here's the model of the thing I'm trying to, to cut. And that model of the thing I'm trying to cut is inside a model of the thing that's doing the cutting. And I can manipulate all of that uh, in virtual space instead of having to like see if this thing I'm trying to do is going to blow up the whole machine. Mm. Yeah, that's a fascinating view because if you're able to see it real time digitally, you can do more uh, probing and investigation as opposed to sticking your head in the machine, right? So that's that's a fascinating approach. I didn't think of that. Well, not to mention a bunch of these functions already exist. So if right. you want to do, right. you know, crash prevention or look ahead or whatever, th these are individual features and functions that have been rolled out for a long time. As soon as somebody said, let's have a computer control uh, a mill, that was kind of when all this stuff started to be rolled out. It's tying it all together into a cohesive whole and putting it into some meaningful, useful operator facing or user facing package. Right. That's the piece that seems like it's different now. Yeah. Yeah. Further integration. Yep. And if, as, ISO is clearly a worldwide organization, but it does feel like it's um, with the different uh, global entities participating. It does feel like uh, everyone's taking uh, a little piece out of the pie and moving it forward. It's not just a singular nation or one group. Um, so, yeah, and I'm sometimes a skeptic about the speed at which ISO moves or <laughs> at the uh, the ability to actually accomplish the mission of getting diverse points of view and diverse. Um, global players involved, but this one was definitely a case where you see people from all over the world, both on the, the writing side and the, the testing and deploying sides. There were two use cases that were in the US. One was in Sweden, all the drafting was in Korea. Meetings were held at a variety of global sites and online. Uh, the meeting convener is an American from England. I mean, it's just, very, very, very international in scope, which is what you'd expect with, you know, given the organization, but right. it's nice to see it actually realized in a cutting edge technology like this, right. which is why we need to put it on a test bed yep. as soon as possible. Steve, hopefully you're comfortable with this. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to it, man. So yeah, I, yeah we, we <laughs> need to put it on the test bed as soon as possible. <laughs> see, see this, this says management. I'm the management. <laughs> Sheriff Gold Star means uh, unless it's roping up the bad guys. <laughs> well, hey man, you uh, you get me this ISO document LV two two three or uh, what is it two three two four seven? See, ISO you joke, two you joke, but you had the number. You had the number the whole time. <laughs> yeah. ISO two three two four seven. I was trying to make the alien joke. Yeah, eight six seven five three zero one. For those of us who didn't put two and two together, Steve is a uh, engineer in aliens. I'll die short, short. <laughs> Thanks for the uh, practical effect there. <laughs> awesome. Steve, any more questions about um, the digital twin? Um, I'm, uh, I'm excited no, to I see uh, next steps. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited about it. it it's, it's making a lot. It seems like the most, uh, while, you know, this, this the, the webinar yesterday was talking about all the work that these organizations, these, these big companies have been doing towards it. Um, the exciting thing for me is as every day goes by, you know, a digital twin makes a little bit more sense. <laughs> so, so that's a huge plus for me. 
Yeah. For me, it's every day the digital twin will solve a different problem. That's uh, that's the realization. It's kind of a, a real thing. So I'm excited. Uh, there's a couple of articles I wanted to talk about. Uh, one was an um, article from SME. Uh, they talked about model-based definition. And I think it's kind of an extension we'll be talking about on digital twins. So the article is from uh, was written by a guy from Verisurf, but he was talking about the value of uh, model-based definition in a small to medium-sized company, specifically a, um, a contract manufacturing facility. Uh, they're on the smaller side, and the value of integrating GD&T uh, geometric dimension and tolerance and into the model and receiving those models from the customer and not just using 2D drawings or IGES models. And, you know, from my days, ages, ages ago of doing some design work, doing IGES models and step models for me back then, this was probably like 15 years ago, they were very, very similar as in to me, they felt uh, reduced, but they've come a long way in, in, in embedding digital data and being able to communicate that data and technical packages outside their for their building, outside their four walls. Uh, so it talks about step AP242, which Rush, you mentioned earlier about, you know, being um, embedding as much data into the, the digital model and communicate that to your suppliers. So when the contractor receives that, um, they're able to use that data within their process and, you know, use that data in their first article inspection. That's the big takeaways there automating some of the tasks for first article inspection, which is actually very, very tedious and very laborious because you document everything in your manufacturing process and say, here, customer, I've done everything right for the first time. Leave me alone. Let me keep building this. But you've done a tremendous amount of documentation. And uh, that was the, the big takeaway in the article was that uh, you can help automate some of your documentation to supply to your customer um, by stepping towards uh, using some of the analytical tools or digital tools we have today. And that's the vision, right? Is you already have a machine that knows what it's doing. Why would you why would you need to verify that process separately when the machine's already been qualified historically? And now you can just say that the machine, you know, self-reporting out of the machine, I did what I was qualified to do at this time. Here's your timestamp, here's the part program I ran, ran, et cetera, et cetera. It's it's crazy to have to do any of that manually. Yeah. If it if the information already exists, it's somewhere else in your system. Yep. Yep. Yeah, the idea of self-reporting machines is uh, definitely uh, a big thing that I'm looking forward to. Steve, do you want to? You had an article on superconductors that you want to take us through. Yeah, yeah, I got this really sweet uh, article on a. Uh, it's about a team of physicists out of New York that have discovered a the first superconductor at room temperature. And before we uh, dive into superconductors and their uses or their usefulness. Sure. Um, just, just to paint the picture, a regular conductor, and we're talking about electrical conductors here. A regular conductor um, is a material that uh, is very good at, or, or, or very low resistant in allowing the pass of electrons or electricity through it. So it's, it's got low resistance, high conductivity. They're, they're inversely proportional to each other. Um, in fact, uh, I, so resistance is measured in ohms. Sure. Do you know what the, uh, the, the unit of measurement for conductance, which is the opposite of resistance? Conductance, uh, my initial guess was one over ohms. It's Mohs, <laughs> the opposite of ohms. And, and uh, but uh, so a conductor, 
a, a good conductor is, you know, low resistance. Um, and one of the physical properties of conductive materials is as they get colder, mm-hmm. um, their redis- their resistance, their electrical resistance also reduces. Sure. Um, but a superconductor, a superconductor, what makes a superconductor super is that when it gets below a certain temperature threshold, when it gets to a certain coldness level, let's say that's totally inaccurate. But when it gets below a specific temperature, it loses all resistance totally. Okay. So it's it's a perfect conductor once you get it below a certain temperature. And the problem with a lot of superconductors is they become a superconductor where they get to their this this property that it's so sought after at extremely cold temperatures, well below right. zero, well below freezing, sure. um, you know, Music really, like- really cold temperatures. And to right. get these superconductors uh, to work the way we want them to, a lot of uh, um, energy rich and very like energy hog technologies are needed to keep these conductors cold so that this electrical uh, system works the way you want it to. Uh, so the big deal here is this uh, this New York team of physicists has discovered a superconductor that has its superconductor pr- uh, properties at room temperature, at like normal to human temperatures, <laughs> which is really cool and uh, literally and um, – I, I think it's a big deal because, you know, some of the technology that superconductors go into are like MRI scanners, mm-hmm. um, nuclear fusion, um, and uh, what's another one? Um, MRI nuclear fusion, and I had a third one. Come on, man. That's all right. So what was it? You know, if we do go to room temperature, I mean, it sounds like things were working using like liquid, liquid nitrogen or something advanced cooling. Yeah. If we go to room temperature, I mean, that sounds nice, but what's what's the benefit? What what are we? Well, now you're not using as much energy. Okay. Now you're now you have a more efficient device ah, theoretically because gotcha. they sure. haven't been made yet. Yeah. The thing was just discovered, but now you have a more energy efficient device because now you don't need to dump a whole lot of energy into cooling this one component that makes the thing work the way it's supposed to work. Gotcha. So you could. Um, free it from your advanced cooling needs to maybe be more portable or uh, not using tons of power. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Probably makes it smaller, lighter and more energy efficient. So maybe in your computer. Exciting time. Probably not Folding at home with a supercomputer, superconductor. Yeah, let's get some folding. (laughs) Superconductor, super folding. (laughs) Awesome. This is a very exciting episode. I'm uh, excited to be uh, a special Halloween episode. We've got aliens, we've got some sports, we've got cowboys. See, where can they find more info about us? You can find more info about us and a lot of the exciting, trending technologies in our industry at amtnews.org. Go ahead and subscribe. Russ, where they can find more info about uh, MT Connect. MTConnect.org. That's the place. That's the place. Awesome, guys. This is a very exciting episode, and uh, thanks, everyone. Bye. Happy trails, sweaty Joe Buck and weird alien guy. Till we meet again. <laughs> <laughs>